It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Because I sue half the companies in the space, I know where this market is going, I believe, better than one of the top 10 people in the world. I've seen in the, the insides of every single crypto company. Kyle Roche was a fast-rising star in the niche field of cryptocurrency law. And in trying to woo potential investors, Roche bragged about his bold litigation strategy and the case that put him and his fledgling law firm on the map, a $100 million judgment against a self-proclaimed Bitcoin inventor. $100 million. So I now take the $100 million. I go to the court and I say, hey, court, I got $100 million for these 100,000 Indians out there. Give me... Give me $30 million, and then I will administer. The problem was that Roche didn't know he was secretly being recorded, and when the videos of some of his other boasts were anonymously posted online, his fall was spectacularly swift. I deal with making sure that the SEC has, the SEC and the CFTC have other magnets to go after. Joining me is Bloomberg Law Reporter Justin Wise. Justin Roche was barely five years out of law school when all this happened. How did he rise so fast as a lawyer? So as cryptocurrency starts to kind of take off and a lot of companies start to uh, develop and mature, the same thing happens with the legal market. More lawyers are involved in it. There are more disputes in the courts taking place and a lot of novel legal theories being tested. And Kyle Roche was one of those people. He founded a law firm in 2019 with a couple other folks that wanted to really specialize in cryptocurrency law and not just advising companies, but also having a class action practice that would take on those companies that were allegedly perhaps breaking the law or violating securities laws. And they had some big cases that they were taking on. So as you mentioned, he founded his firm in 2019 and By this year, it was really thriving in a lot of respects. They were working on a lot of different cases, some of which had been geared up for trials in the coming years. And, you know, he was making a name for him and his firm. So tell us about the case that, a little about the case that put them on the map. That litigation involved a case against Craig Wright. They represented the estate of Craig Wright's alleged former business partner. And Craig Wright is a man who's actually claimed to be the person who developed Bitcoin. So the case that they ended up taking up was claiming that Craig Wright's former business partner and the estate was who they were representing, was entitled to half a cash of Bitcoin that they mined together in the assets early years. And this Bitcoin that they mined together in, in these early years is now worth millions, billions actually. And a federal jury in Florida 
cleared right in December 2021 of claims, including fraud and theft, but did order him to pay a $100 million judgment for the unlawful seizure of intellectual property tied to his and his alleged former business partner's estate. So the $100 million judgment, and it was a big case because it involved this kind of idiosyncratic figure like Craig Wright, who has claimed to be the person who developed Bitcoin. A lot of people don't believe that claim. But because of that, it gave him a lot of publicity. It was a big trial in December, and they got a $100 million judgment. And to their mind, the way that they touted it was that it was a precedent-setting case, and they celebrated it as such. He arrives in London barely five years out of law school, and he's looking mm-hmm. to line up investors for a litigation crowdfunding startup. Right. So in addition, Kyle Roach was hoping to start this company called Rival, which would essentially be in ways that you might know litigation finance, where certain investment firms or litigation finance firms will help fund the litigating of a lawsuit for a plaintiff's firm. Uh, He wanted to do that in a sense, but on the blockchain. So giving retail investors of crypto the chance to bet on a lawsuit and to help perhaps finance a lawsuit on the blockchain. That was at least the idea. And he goes to London with hopes of getting a venture capitalist, a Norwegian venture capitalist named Kristen Auger Hansen, who was based in London, the hopes of getting him to you know, be receptive to it and to write down a a check that would help the funding of getting this thing off the ground. What kind of statements did he make in this meeting that he had? Was it just pumping himself up? So they really range, as you mentioned. I think there was a level of being brash and being in front of an investor and trying to woo the crowd. But it also got into this territory where he really began to explain this relationship that he had with this blockchain startup called Ava Labs. And these leaked recordings show him voicing an apparent strategy to target Ava Labs' competitors by using litigation, by using class action lawsuits that are supposedly on behalf of investors, but may actually be an underhanded way of helping Ava Labs. That is what he says in these videos. He's also recorded disparaging jurors and class members and saying other things about how his job is to find other magnets for U.S. regulators to go after instead of his clients. So those comments were the ones that set off the fallout. Justin, Kyle Roche didn't realize that he was being videotaped. He didn't find out until months later when this crypto leak site put it out there. Right. So he goes to London in late January, and 10 months later, they are released by this website named CryptoLeaks. And, you know, with the caveat, it's still unclear who is behind the website CryptoLeaks, but it posts in late August, and it includes this long post with about 25 different videos spliced in between text, laying out Kyle Roche's time in London two different settings. One's in a conference room in Kristen Auger Hansen's office in London. Another is at this bustling restaurant in London. And the videos lay out what I previously said. Kyle Roche talking about himself as a lawyer, talking about his relationship with this company named Ava Labs, and also talking about how he uses the court system to help Ava Labs. And no one knows at this point even who recorded those? That is where we get into really messy territory. After the videos were published, Kyle Roche posts an online statement a few days later 
on the website Medium, claiming that Kristen Auger Hansen, this Norwegian entrepreneur who runs a private equity firm, was behind it. He also claims that Kristen Auger Hansen was working for a crypto firm named Definity, which is actually a defendant in an action that Roche's firm filed. Now, he didn't give any evidence to support that claim, and his law firm has also made that claim, but it's still not clear who was behind them. Christopher Aga Hansen has said to me that a business consultant who had first reached out to him about potential opportunities in the blockchain space, and he set up the meeting with Kyle Roche and people from Ava Labs, he claims that this man was behind the recordings and has claimed that he has not been able to get in touch with him since, and that he also thinks that it, the name that this business consultant provided may be an alias. So it gets into really, really messy territory from there. Has it been alleged or proven in any way that this was an orchestrated takedown of Roche? I think it's clear that we can say this was an orchestrated takedown of Roche. What gets less clear is who was behind it. I think you can tell that Kyle Roche was in London and was being secretly recorded with the goal of publishing those recordings to make him look bad. It was sort of a a spectacular downfall. Tell us what happened. In a nutshell, the recordings come out in late August. Less than two months later, Roche is out of his law firm. His law firm has changed its name to erase any link to him. He has lost his role in a number of different crypto class actions. The first crypto lawsuit his firm filed in 2019 was this market manipulation suit against the crypto exchange Bitfinex and its affiliate Tether, which is behind the Tether stablecoin. They had been litigating for about three years up until October, and a New York judge actually kicked the firm off the case in response to these videos and requests from not just the defendants, but also Roche's co-counsel. There were a couple other law firms working with them on the case, and they requested that the firm be kicked off the case to avoid, in their words, a sideshow. Just a few days later, the firm cut links to Kyle Roche in what appears to be an attempt to move on from this saga and to avoid more dominoes falling. Is the field of cryptocurrency law particularly cutthroat compared to other areas of law? You know, that's a really good question. And I I think as this new industry has emerged, it has a lot of brash figures and it has a lot of people moving fast and breaking things. And it's bound to lead to some fights. And I think from the angle that I'm looking into, what I can tell you is that there has been a huge surge in litigation involving the cryptocurrency space. Some would say that it's very much akin to any industry that gets more mature, it's going to have to deal with more litigation. But, you know, if you just look at the number of securities class actions that have been filed against cryptocurrency companies in the last two years, it is nothing compared to what it was like maybe five years ago. So I think in those senses, it's really led to a lot of hostilities between some different folks in different parts of the industry or even uh, branches that are off the industry, such as the legal one. And this crypto leak site, still no one knows who's behind it? It's very unclear. The The website was uh, registered with a anonymous domain in May. And as I mentioned, Kyle Roche and his now former law firm have drawn some connections from publicly available evidence to draw a connection between crypto leaks and 
the crypto firm Definity, which is behind uh, the internet computer blockchain and the ICP token. Now, their claims are that every story on CryptoLeaks has been related to Definity and the ICP token and have drawn some other links between Kristen Auger Hansen, who has reportedly had a history of secretly recording folks. So that is their claim. What we are going to probably find out more, though, because as I mentioned, Rivers' former firm filed a lawsuit against Definity, and they have made those claims in court filings in that lawsuit against Definity. Now, Definity has yet to respond, but they are due to respond by tomorrow, and then there will be a hearing scheduled in January. There's perhaps more that we may be able to find out in the coming weeks and months. Roche, as you said, he was ousted from his own firm. He's down, but he's not out, is he? He's not out. He has established his own solo practice and has some individual matters that he's remaining to work on. According to the dockets, it seems that he's not completely gone away. He is certainly off maybe a lot of the more high-profile cases that he was working on. But, you know, for that matter, that lawsuit we mentioned at the outset against Craig Wright, the uh, self-proclaimed Bitcoin inventor, that is on appeal now. And he is, uh, along with his former firm, are vying to remain counsel in that case. Wright's counsel has pushed for their disqualification. He's one of at least five defendants who have pushed for not just Roche's, but his, his entire firm's disqualification from uh, representing its uh, party in the case. So he's certainly not going away, and it's perhaps time may be the best thing on his side. Thanks so much, Justin. It's a great story. That's Bloomberg Law reporter Justin Wise. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers, they're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Former President Donald Trump has announced another White House run while facing a slew of legal troubles with potential criminal indictments and maybe a civil trial or two interrupting any campaign. However, on Tuesday, federal judges dismissed 
two lawsuits against him, one by his niece Mary Trump and the other by his former attorney Michael Cohen. Joining me to discuss these is Bloomberg legal reporter Eric Larson. What was his niece Mary Trump suing him over? So Mary Trump had had filed the lawsuit in 2020 accusing Donald Trump and his siblings, Robert Trump and Marianne Trump, of basically defrauding her out of her share of the family's fortune through a series of alleged schemes that spanned several years and involved her inheritance from her father. They acted as fiduciaries for her uh, when her father passed away. And so uh, she claims that uh, she was supplied for years with fake documents, false documents, tax returns, financial disclosures, things like that to make her believe that her uh, share in the family business was worth much less than it was. So that when a big family settlement happened in 2001 to resolve various legal disputes, she ended up selling her share for what she says was tens of millions of dollars less than what it was really worth. Do we know how much she got from that settlement? We don't, or at least I'm not sure how much she got from it. But uh, they had quite a, a large Um, Obviously, a large operation with the Trump family, lots of real estate um, interests involving hundreds of apartments and, you know, large properties and with uh, shopping centers and things like that. So it was a pretty complex group of assets that they sort of referred to as their mini empire, you know, in court papers uh, revealed that's one of the things they called it. So it was a pretty complex operation. She had a minority share in it, and it was significant enough uh, that she claims that the amount that they devalued through deceiving her was worth tens of millions of dollars, potentially. More than 70 acres of land in New York City. I'd like to know what that was worth. So why did why did the judge dismiss it? Well, the judge decided that Donald Trump and the estate of uh, Robert Trump, who passed away after the suit was filed, and uh, Marianne Trump had correctly argued that the 2001 settlement agreement that I mentioned earlier had explicitly released any of Mary Trump's potential future claims arising from this whole dispute. You know, the judge says it was unambiguous that it released them from all future potential claims. Of course, Mary Trump and her lawyers argued that that was really kind of void considering her claim that they had specifically deceived her and lied to her for years. And her lawyer argued that it was clear that the deception was intended to rip her off, essentially, and that therefore the contract releasing them from claims wasn't valid. But the judge said that there was no language in the contract that specifically said that Donald Trump and Robert Trump and Marianne Trump needed to be truthful to her. So that was kind of unusual, but that's why the judge said he dismissed it. Unusual is one way of putting it. He said the settlement didn't mandate the elder Trumps to be truthful. Quote, if plaintiff did not wish to forego suing on fraud, she might discover in the future she could have insisted that the releases be conditioned on the truth and accuracy of the financial information provided by defendants. (laughs) Right. And, And, you know, I'm not a lawyer, but it seemed like maybe What the judge was getting at is that specific language should have been put in there saying, you know, something along the lines of all of this is, you know, based on the statements being true or things like that. I'm not sure what exactly the judge was referring to. But, you know, Mary Trump's lawyer, uh, Roberta Kaplan, a, a quite skilled litigator. You know, she's planning to appeal this. She said she's going to argue that there is enough evidence or claims in the complaint 
to get around this release of all claims, you know, including her claim that Trump and his siblings sort of threatened to withhold health insurance to one of Mary Trump's young family members who is suffering an illness to try to twist her arm into agreeing to this settlement, which, of course, the uh, elder Trumps have all denied doing anything like that. But the claims are in there in the complaints. Mary Trump claims she was sort of forced into this and she was also deceived. And so they're going to try to get an appeals court to see this differently. Eric, is the timing of this decision a little odd? The motion has been pending for quite a long time, and then the judge hands down the decision on the same day that Trump has said he's going to announce another run for president. I mean, it was certainly at least a strange coincidence. I do know from speaking with Mary Trump's lawyer over the years that she has been waiting very anxiously for this decision on the motion to dismiss and has been saying for quite some time that the decision was long overdue. So the judge, I'm not aware of the judge ever saying anything about timing, like, hey, I'm going to wait to issue a decision for such and such political reason. I, you know, nothing like that was ever said. It just sort of never came. So for it to be issued, uh, you know, on that same day, of course, did sort of stand out. But, you know, there's been all, all kinds of questions in, in the courts with Trump being involved in so much litigation about whether or not judges' decisions could, you know, influence some politics or things like that. Of course, we're waiting for the Justice Department to decide whether or not it might you know, charge Donald Trump over January 6th or over the documents issue at Mar-a-Lago. So there's so much politics involved in everything legal related to Trump. I guess it wouldn't really surprise me. But Mary Trump's lawyer definitely said that this took way too long, especially given the age of these defendants and the fact she specifically said in her statement to me, she called out the fact that Trump is now running for president again, which in her view, she seems to believe that this decision should have been issued sooner rather than later to give this case a chance to move forward before he's actually running for president again. Did they do any discovery, do you know, in the case before the motion to dismiss? I don't believe so. I could be wrong on that, so I'm not exactly sure. I, I know that that usually kicks off after a motion to dismiss, but I, there was already so much documents um, available because, of course, Mary Trump had been a, a source, and a, a secret source, you could say, for the New York Times' 2018 expose on Trump's taxes. And a lot of those documents from that 2001 settlement and, and all kinds of other records she obtained and gave to the New York Times. And those records are what underlie her, her claims about fraud. So that is why, you know, maybe the, in, as far as discovery is concerned, a lot of documents are already out there. But I'm not sure how far they got on that. Now, let's just untangle. There are several lawsuits between Mary Trump and former President Donald Trump. First of all, there was a lawsuit trying to stop her from writing that tell-all book. She won that. Yeah, she won that. Um, I don't believe Donald Trump was specifically a defendant in that. I think that Robert Trump, before he passed away uh, in 2020, I believe that he filed that suit. But of course, you know, Donald Trump would have been maybe involved behind the scenes or whatnot. There, were, there was a concerted effort to stop this book from being published. She prevailed in that. The book went out and she's been a fierce uh, critic of her uncle ever since then, you know, going on TV and on Twitter and things like that. So she, she did win that. Now she's lost this one, but there is still another remaining case, and that's Donald Trump's lawsuit against her, accusing her of violating the confidentiality clause of that 2001 family settlement by being a source for the New York Times' article. And the suit also names the New York Times, by the way. So that uh, case has been moving along pretty slowly, like the other one. And hopefully it'll, it'll be moving along soon. I think there might be a hearing scheduled in that case now for next month. She has a motion to dismiss in that case pending? 
That's correct. And she argues that it was her, her right to uh, provide these documents that uh, because she had been defrauded. And the New York Times, of course, argues that it's a First Amendment right to produce the document that it did produce. You know, winning the Pulitzer Prize for that, that article shows how much public interest there was in Donald Trump's taxes. And that actually remains an area of concern for many people. So very interesting case, um, potentially even more interesting than the one that was just dismissed. So it'll be interesting to see how far uh, Donald Trump goes on that. Roberta Kaplan, her lawyer, she's also E. Jean Carroll's lawyer. Does she have a lot of cases against Donald Trump? And is there a reason? <laughs> well, you could say that uh, she's a fierce critic of Donald Trump. And I, I believe E. Jean Carroll had uh, you know, made her serious allegations of, of rape against Donald Trump. And then when he denied it, in crude terms, she sued him for defamation. And I believe that Mary Trump was aware of, of that case and read about it. And I, I believe that may have been why she ended up reaching out to Roberta Kaplan, because she wanted her to represent her as well. So, yeah, there's definitely um, some criticism there. She also represents uh, a handful of uh, investors who have a, a pending civil fraud suit filed against Donald Trump and his uh, elder children and his company, um, alleging that he tricks them into investing in a very troubled multi-level marketing company that he endorsed for years on his Celebrity Apprentice show before he was president. And a lot of people invested in that multi-level marketing company and, and lost a lot of money. And they claimed that Donald Trump never revealed that he was being paid for these endorsements and just was lying by saying he believed in their products, which included, you know, a desktop video phone that was really clunky. And he said was going to be the future of communication. And, you know, it was already on its way out the door because of <laughs> smartphones. So Roberta Kaplan is running that case as well. It's hard to keep track of the cases. The E. Jean Carroll case, was a deposition of Trump ordered in that case? A deposition was ordered, and he had been uh, questions, and he answered questions under oath in that case just recently. Do we know anything about what he said? I assume it was denials. But... No. No, yeah. we don't know anything about that. Both sides are very tight-lipped about anything that is said in depositions, so that's not terribly surprising. But if it ever does go to trial, I think that you know some of that, that information could come out. Interesting. Now, from, you know, one Trump suit to another, Michael Cohen, of course, Trump's former attorney, had sued Trump, claiming that he retaliated against him. It's a little complicated. Tell us about it. Well, Michael Cohen, of course, you know, pleaded guilty to crimes, including campaign finance crimes uh, related to those hush money payments to Stormy Daniels before Trump was elected in 2016. So he pleaded guilty to that, was sentenced to three years. He ended up getting out a little early because of COVID um, and going to home arrest. But while he was locked up, he was writing a book, a tell-all book about Donald Trump. And uh, when Cohen was, you know, released from prison due to, to COVID, he claims that he was thrown back in prison and into solitary confinement for uh, about two weeks because Trump wanted to silence him from writing this book. He essentially was presented with a document saying, sign this, agreeing to never not speak to the media or write any books. And <laughs> you can stay out of prison. Um, sort so of like a movie. You're right. So anyway, he, he ended up filing a legal action from behind bars, you know, habeas corpus action, and, and a judge sided with him uh, in very strong terms, said that it was improper what had happened, it was uh, retaliation, and let him out. So then uh, Cohen sued the government, sued Trump, former Attorney General William Barr, and accused them of retaliating against him illegally. 
So that suit has been pending for a while, and that suit was also just tossed out. Yeah, why did the judge toss it out? Because he said that the complaint alleges an egregious violation of constitutional rights by the executive branch, nothing short of the use of executive power to lock up the president's political enemies for speaking critically of him. So tell us why, in light of that, the judge still felt he had to dismiss the suit. Right. And that quote really sums up the judge's decision. He, he thought what happened to uh, Michael Cohen was pretty awful. But he said that his hands were essentially tied because the U.S. Supreme Court in recent years has been chipping away at this right that had been established under previous Supreme Court precedent to sue law enforcement for you know wrongdoing. So I'm not sure exactly how every one of the cases has chipped away at that right. It's called a Bivens claim. That's the name of the sort of landmark case yeah. that was involved. And in recent years, they've just uh, the Supreme Court just sort of chipped away at when it's appropriate to sue the government in this way over a law enforcement action like that. And I think that, uh, as with a lot of things you see with um, you know the Supreme Court changing in some ways, they're saying this just isn't the role of the court unless Congress creates this right. Uh, so basically, they're saying if there's this right to sue over these sort of wrongdoings by law enforcement, then Congress should create that right explicitly instead of relying on Supreme Court precedent to create it. Yeah, I don't even know what's left of Bivens anymore after the recent decisions of the court. Right. But get another Michael Cohen suit. He won before the appeals court that he can sue Trump to cover the millions of dollars in legal fees that he incurred from defending against investigations into his work for Trump because the real estate firm stopped paying his legal bills. So that's another suit that's going forward here. And I think that, you know, there's um, probably a lot of different types of employment contracts where employees are, you know, get caught up in various legal troubles for whatever reason, and they expect or hope that their employer is going to pay those legal fees. So in a way, that lawsuit is kind of like a standard one you might expect to see, except that it involves Michael Cohen and and the Trump organization. So Mr. Cohen was pretty pleased about that um, and getting that news right about the same time that his other case was thrown out. Uh, So it's kind of a consolation prize there, I guess. But I'm sure that the Trump organization is going to continue to fight this uh, very fiercely. And let's talk about one more Trump suit, Eric. Donald Trump is trying to avoid paying more than $1 million in legal fees and costs to Hillary Clinton and dozens of others. First, why did he sue them? So he sued Hillary Clinton and the Democratic Party and a couple of dozen other individuals and entities, everyone that was sort of tangentially involved in the Russia investigation into Trump during his single term in office. He alleged that they basically um, all conspired, a conspiracy led by Hillary Clinton and, and other top Democrats in her campaign and in the DNC, conspired to undermine his presidency with a fake Russia witch hunt investigation. So he spelled it all out in this complaint. It was really long. Essentially, was filed under a civil version of the racketeering laws normally used against uh, organized crime. And it had all the grievances from the Russian investigation spelled out in there, everything from the steel dossier to Fusion GPS. You know, anyone who followed that news at that time would see every uh, every name and entity in there, all named as defendants. They filed a motion to dismiss that just you know, picked apart the complaint, saying how it failed to put together a conspiracy and that a lot of the claims they said were, were not really backed by anything like facts, but just sort of assertions or theories. 
And the judge in Florida, federal judge, dismissed the case in September. And Trump was given a chance to amend the complaint, which he did. But as far as the judge was concerned, the amended complaint was no better. And it was, had, in fact, wasted everyone's time. Because one of the defendants, just one of them, a man named Charles Dolan, a Democratic political operative who worked on Clinton's campaign and lots of Democratic campaigns, filed a motion for sanctions against Trump's lawyers. And the judge just recently granted the motion and ordered Trump's lawyers to pay $16,000 in legal fees and costs to Charles Dolan, plus $50,000 to the court as an additional slap on the wrist. But Hillary Clinton and all the other defendants have filed a joint motion for sanctions that's even bigger, totaling over $1 million in fees and costs. So that motion for sanctions is pending, and the judge who will decide on it has clearly already decided that this case was a real stinker. He said it was filed for political reasons, that it had no basis in fact, and he really faulted the lawyers specifically for being involved in it. I don't know how you're keeping up with all these cases, Eric, and all the different permutations. Thanks so much. That's Eric Larson, Bloomberg Legal Reporter. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.